Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by the incredible, the one and the only, Mr. Clive Chernick. Hello, Clive. Hi, Jess. Good to be with you. Now, Clive, I deliberately didn't give you a long, flowery overview of your life type introduction then, because a lot of what our conversation is going to do now is focus around some of your life's experience. Uh, I'm looking forward. You've been you've been in pastoral ministry in various guises for many decades now. So why don't you give us just a, a bit of a, a potted history of Clive's leadership experience, and then we're going to come on today to talk about the role of the pastor and uh, some, some tips and advice for church leadership more generally. Clive, sure. over to you. Sure. Okay. Quick potted history. So um, I was born in London, um, University College Hospital, just off the Tottenham Court Road uh, to my parents who were living in northwest London at the time. Got a brother and a sister. I'm the middle kid. And um, I grew up in a completely non-Christian family, um, a very happy family, actually. Mom and dad, uh, long marriage, 63 years, happy, happy childhood. And uh, didn't go to church. Uh, dad's, uh, dad and mum, both in a, from a medical background, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed kind of the whole science deal. This is a time of you know growing um, materialism, atheism, and the, and the gradual kind of culture of going to church fading away after the Second World War and, and intellectual doubts and so on. So my parents were caught up in all that. So they're kind of liberal North London Guardian readers, as I could describe them <laughs> affectionately, and. Um, but I remember my father going through a crisis of faith in his 40s and he dragged me to our local Anglican church. And he said, you come with me, Clive, because your mother won't come with me. and I'm, I'm searching for God in my 40s. So this was an interesting time for me. I was I was a little pagan boy um, going to an all boys school. Um, no one, no experience of church whatsoever. Oh, Dad, do I have to go to these to, to the church? Really, it was so boring. It was a pretty dull place. Uh, anyway, long story short, my father searches for about six months and uh, doesn't find God. And but he made me go through confirmation, which I thought was really annoying. So I ended up with getting confirmed in the Anglican Church as a complete non-believer, and my father giving up on church life. So and it was. From then on, really, um, I, I had no experience of the gospel whatsoever. So, and then in the sixth form at my school, it was an amazing revival, and uh, I get dragged along to another Christian meeting. And this time, I properly heard the gospel for the first time and become a Christian. So, um, off to university, studying French and Italian, which I still love. I, I love languages, I love Europe. Um, and um, from then on, really, um, into a career which was teaching and climbed the greasy pole of um, promotion and ended up as a deputy head of the secondary school. I had no idea that I was going to become a church leader. So very, very quickly, just to finish this uh, potted history, um, I'm in the, in the north of England and um, I joined a church plant that came out of Emmanuel Church, Durham. And uh, I was quite surprised at how um, difficult things were in it. There was a sort of a sense of um, the authoritarianism of that particular stream of churches. And I found myself clashing with the leaders of, of that uh, network of churches. And long story short, ended up uh, leaving that church with about 12, 11, 12 other people. And then we thought, well, what are we gonna do? So we started our own church in my sitting room. 
um, in County Durham. And, um, and from then on, uh, I was on a pathway towards full-time church. I thought I was gonna become a head teacher of a secondary school. Um, and it was when our church in County Durham had got to something like 150 people, that my friend John Groves, uh, who I'd been with in King's Church in Hastings in earlier years, um, he, he said to me, you've got to make a choice here, Clive. You've got to decide whether you're going to go on in secular employment and make that your life's work, or whether you're going to be the father to this church that started in your sitting room. And from so from about 1995, I think, onwards, uh, I jumped ships. So I was like 40, 41. I'd never been an elder before in a church. I'd been a teacher I'd, all my life. But... Oh my goodness, I found myself suddenly becoming uh, a pastor. And uh, from then on, I've not looked back because uh, from, from County Durham, uh, growing the church, King's Church, Darlington, um, and then leaving that when it gets to about, I think got to about 250, came down to the south of England to marry Heather, um, and then joined King's Church Eastbourne. And from King's Church Eastbourne uh, on staff with Don Smith, and Andy Johnston and others um, moved eventually to Dubai to, to at the request of Dave Holden within the New Frontiers Network to try and sprinkle some fairy dust on some squabbling churches on the compound in Dubai. Uh, that went disastrously wrong because those four churches on the compound all left New Frontiers. They wanted to do their own thing. And uh, I found myself with uh, my house rented out for a year. Um, I found myself with my visa cancelled and I had no money to my name and, um, and found I had to start from scratch in Dubai. So from then on, it was an absolute roller coaster ride. So I've been in King's Eastbourne, I planted King's Church Darlington, and now I find myself in Dubai, the third church, and um, beginning from scratch uh, and starting an international church, which is an absolute thrill. And from then on, um, the next five years were in Dubai. Two years after that, I went to Qatar and did the same thing again, set up a small group, but fell foul of the visa regulations in Qatar and um, had, had, had to come home. Found Qatar extremely difficult after Dubai. I can come to that later if you want to ask me some questions about that. And then back home, back home to Eastbourne, and uh, sadly lost my wife Heather to, to cancer um, in 2016 went through some very difficult wilderness years um, then, and but very happily uh, found love again. And this was um, with Gillian and we've been married a year. And here I am back in King's Church Eastbourne and uh, on staff with Ollie Stevens and Andy Thorpe and Ben and Martin and really enjoying being um, back in Sussex. So that's a really quick potted history. Man, that, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> That's sixty hundred years. Uh, just gone by. <laughs> well, Liz, I mean, before I start diving into the weeds of different questions of things that I'd love to explore together, let's let's step back a bit and first of all try to define and understand even what we talk about when we talk about being a pastor and 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 knowing that as a to, to some degree a vo as a vocational call, something that you feel is part of your identity of gift and role and service to the church so uh, where do we get this idea of pastor from how significant and important is it to the lord and do churches even need pastors where are your thoughts with all of that yeah well, i want to go straight to peter and um peter in the new testament who is feeling ashamed 
but he's denied Jesus three times. He's gone fishing again. He's alone with his thoughts on the boat, or he's with his, with his mates, with his other disciples. But he's, he's, he's got a burden of guilt of having betrayed Jesus, and he needs to find a way of getting rid of that burden. And um, he's out fishing, and then suddenly Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is on the standing on the shore. And I love this bit in the end of John's Gospel where Jesus says, Brothers, you know, have you found much? You know, and, and then you know, you know the story. He, Jesus um, is suddenly recognised by Peter, and because he's so longing for reconciliation with Jesus, he jumps into the sea, swims, wades to the floor, and I, I can imagine the rest. He falls at Jesus's feet, you know, and he's remembering things that he said before, like "Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man." How much more does he feel? Lord, I betrayed you. And, and then this beautiful restoration of Peter, where Jesus says, do you love me? You know I love you. Well, feed my sheep. And then from that, there's this commissioning to be a pastor. So there's this immediate sense of shepherd sheep. There's this idea now that you're going looking for cast sheep from now on. You're going to, sheep are a crazy little thing. I mean, I, you know, if you believe in evolution, I challenge you on what a sheep looks like. You know, it's got no armour. It's got no claws. It's got no sharp teeth. You know, how did a sheep evolve? Uh, come on, let's face it. You know, that's the most vulnerable creature out there. Useless creature. And I live near, very near the South Downs. I'm literally half a mile from shinning up onto the South Downs and there are sheep everywhere. And sometimes you come across a cast sheep. So it's a sheep that has fallen onto its back. It's little four legs in the air. It cannot right itself. And the, the shepherd comes along on his quad bike and he rights the sheep. But the cast sheep is totally vulnerable. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, I've got vulnerable sheep. And so you, you're to, you know, that goes deeply back into Ezekiel about God calling the shepherds to account. It's all there in the Old Testament about care for the sheep, feed the sheep, nourish the sheep, protect the sheep, bring them home rejoicing on your shoulder. Look for the lost ones. Look for the sick ones. And so that's to me being a pastor, which translates in the New Testament to fatherhood. You know, when Paul says in Corinthians, you've got many guardians who will tell you that's right, that's wrong, stop that, behave yourself, but you don't have many fathers. Say, come on, sit, let's go for a walk. Come on, tell me your troubles. Come on, it's father-son, father-daughter relationship. It's beautiful, uh, and, and it implies teaching next to it. So it's, is it pastor-teacher in Ephesians? I'm not, it probably is. Uh, so you, out of your experience, you're not just pastoring and binding up the wounded and the brokenhearted. You're, you're saying, come on, let's, you've got to start living in the right way. And I'm going to teach you the gospel and how to live with the glory of what the gospel has done for you. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's a high, high calling. And, um, and also, just to say this, I don't think many will go full time for this. I know it's there in scripture that, you know, if, uh, that those who make their living from the from the gospel have the right to uh, eat you know from the gospel to to make a living from the gospel but it's not for everyone and you've got to be careful about whether you are going to jump ships like i did and go full time but that's another story altogether you know you really got to get before god on that one but i love what i do and um, and don't please don't buttonhole me not that you have done but you know, I don't want to be buttonholed because I'm a little bit of a raving evangelist as well. So I've loved cold contact evangelism and I love to see the spiritual gift in operation. I want to be more and more prophetic as the years go by. 
club as a uh, as a church planter, evangelist, foundation layer. I think apostle is probably a more likely description <laughs> of your your role in the church. Um, <laughs> but we won't no. open that can. No, we won't open that one. No. <laughs> but I, but I want to come back because I mean, uh, that's such a beautiful moment you 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 wonderfully described for us of Jesus with Peter on that first commissioning day. And there's a couple of things that strike me from what you're saying. The first thing is um, the the first question he asks is, do you love me? So there's a as an intimacy between Peter and Jesus that's required before any level of therefore do this on my behalf. Um, can you comment on that, the importance, perhaps the the role and the need for people who consider themselves to be pastors of ensuring they've got a, a vibrant life with the Lord and a love for him? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think one of the most stunning uh, bits of scripture in all, all the book is 1 Corinthians 13, where it's the sandwich, the filling between the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And, you know, it talks about, you know, if I have not love, I am a clashing symbol or resounding gong. In other words, I'm all talk, I'm all noise, but that is not uh, what, what ministry is all about. And I just love even the very first word that love is described as love is patient. I mean, you go through, you know, love keeps no record of wrongs. It's astonishing. Love does not boast. And so you, and you, 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 you think, Paul, you know, you get such a bad press, you know, as you, are you misogynistic? Are you, you know, you're intolerant, you're this, you're that. Actually, he is amazing what he writes, this stunning and glorious description of who God is. And so, so to be able to work with people, you've got to drink deeply of 1 Corinthians 13. It's got to be part of you. You, you know, you're called to be patient with people. I mean, just, you know, there's, a, there's, there's 10 hours of sermons on every line in that. You know, love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, Jesus keeps no record of wrongs in my life. You know, brothers and sisters listening to this podcast, he keeps no record of your wrongs. You know, if you heard nothing else, you know, and then that, oh, there's an overflow of love coming. Your heart is softened. You're, you're filled again with the love of God because you realize how much he loves you. And then from there on, you can leave yourself and your own little concerns behind. And you can devote yourself to other people because you're free to give yourself away in love to other people. You're all right. You've been forgiven your sins. You're now properly yourself to give in love and service to other people. Unless you've had that baptism of love, and understood 1 Corinthians 13 in all its glory, you know, you're, you're not an awful lot of use to other people because you're still hung up about yourself, you know. But that's a, it's perhaps just a really good activity that any pastor would be served by is to spend some time in 1 Corinthians 13 reflecting on both how that relates to them and the Lord, but then how that uh, affects their approach to ministry towards others. Uh, maybe we come, maybe we talk about this now because you know you described your experience in i think it was at darlington before you planted the church of coming out of a church where you described the leader as, as going authoritarian and controlling to some degree and that is something that you hear i guess in any organization or leadership but you it feels most out of place in the church and particularly in light of what you've just described um and so maybe you can just reflect on me or why why is it that you think pastors churches do do sometimes go that way towards authoritarianism and what are some of the ways that you think those of us in pastoral ministry can can what can we do to stop us going down that track 
Sure, sure. I, I mean, this is a massive subject and it's a, really about spiritual authority. And, uh, you know, we have to be very wise about how, particularly how Paul teaches about spiritual authority in the New Testament, but it's there in the Old as well. I mean, this is a, if you get this wrong, if you go from using spiritual authority, the way the New Testament described it, through to authoritarianism, it is incredibly toxic. There was a terribly difficult time back in Darlington when we met this authoritarianism. And I'll come to try and answer that question in a moment, but it was an extraordinarily difficult time for me personally. You know, I, I'm, Jez, you know that it cost me my first marriage, that, that it, was, it was very painful and difficult. We were wrestling with all these very difficult things going on um, in the church. And, and um, you know, my wife then said, you know, I really don't want to be part of this. So I, 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 I hate the environment of the toxicity of this. And long story short, you know, we, you, you know the circumstances surrounding that. I don't need to go into that, but it you know, it has, it can have pretty devastating consequences. I suppose to try and understand why people go from allowing grace to dictate the way you behave with people through to authoritarianism is because probably the law gets things done quicker than grace. You've probably heard that before. In other words, I can tell you what to do instead of appealing to your conscience, instead of saying to you, look, you know, uh, I, you, you judge for yourself that I'm a man of integrity. What I say is not manipulative towards you. I'm, I'm saying these things and leaving room in your own conscience to come before God and find out that what I'm actually telling you is the very counsel of God. I'm not coercing you. I'm saying to you, I believe, my dear friend, that this is what God is wanting to say to you, but I leave you room, wiggle room, to decide whether you think in your conscience this is right or wrong. And in authoritarianism, there's no room for your own conscience. It's saying to you, I'm telling you what to do. So that apostolic movement in the north of England in dictated terms. And so you felt squeezed and you felt, why do I feel uncomfortable here? It's because I'm not... I'm not allowed to grow up into maturity myself. I'm being dictated to. I'll never grow in my relationship with the Lord if you tell me what to do and what not to do. I've got to, I've got to eventually fly solo like a mature saint, you know, not, de not needing to be told what to do. I'm not being kept to your apron strings, you know, that sort of idea. And I think it's just an easier way of doing, do, doing church life, telling people what to do. But it, it doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't work that way. You know, he gave people opportunity to walk away from him. So, you know, he says to when he's given his hardest teaching on, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, this is a hard saying. He says, well, will you leave too? And he lets them go. And so there's this leadership thing where we let people go because you, you are not to control people. This is not, you know, the abuse of power is a terrible thing. Some there are people, perhaps even listening to this podcast, who have been screwed up by authoritarian leadership, and it and some of them will never come back to church again, and some of them will take years to get over that abuse, that spiritual abuse, let alone any other type of abuse. And and this one really does hurt because it it, it you know it's like it's almost cultish, you know you hear of people trying to get out of cults and they can't. God forbid that we should mishandle spiritual authority um, uh, in the way that some some do. Yeah, it's a really uh, important warning to to pastors. I think uh, I know I know individuals who you know have lost whole decades of their lives just caught trying to get free from the influ the influence on their soul 
of an authoritarian controlling leader. And I think particularly in the church, it seems to it seems to wound the saints and the sheep so much because it we it, we equate so much of what we receive from our pastors, we then put onto the Lord and think, well, he must be like that as well. And so there's a, a terrifying responsibility of pastors knowing that they are you know, whether they are aware of it or not, a representative of Jesus, such that if you're a con- controlling, nitpicking, mean-spirited type individual, they'll think that that's how the Lord relates to them as well. Um, and that's that's scary. I suppose in the same way that, you know, fathers bear the name father and so have that similar impact and effect on people. Um, so, I mean, you, you helpfully drew out the distinction, I think, between um, being a controlling leader who tells people what to do and leaves no room for, for, for wiggle room, but then, because where I was, it's helpful that you mentioned that because where my brain was was going was actually how do you know the difference between um, when it, maybe here's the question, is it always the case that you must suggest to people what is right and what is the right course of action, or when is the place for more strong commands? You know, Jesus did say you can go if you want, but he also said some other other times some very strong things you know someone says i want to follow you let me just go bury my father and he says no let the dead bury their own dead you're like well that's very heavy jesus um what are some of your comments on that question yeah, no that's a great question because it's very current isn't it because uh, i think we are here's another german word for you the zeitgeist the spirit of the age okay <laughs> i won't test you on that other word it was a very long one so the zeitgeist being the spirit of the age and we are living in a very interesting zeitgeist at the moment where we've We've left absolutes behind. So, you know, challenging absolute truth. So we're into a relativistic universe where, um, you know, my truth is mine and your truth is yours and I can interpret my own universe. And so therefore, um, if someone comes to me saying to me, I believe there is uh, a right and a wrong in your life. And, I, you know, I believe there is, uh, if there are absolutes, there is an authority structure in the universe you know, I ain't the boss <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't interpret the world to myself. There's something far beyond me, which is bigger and so much more important than me. And I, I didn't make myself, et cetera, et cetera. And I've just turned up here by a creator's loving desire to populate the earth. So I, I kind of rethink who I am. But actually, you know, there is a sense in which um, I have to understand from the New Testament that I am to exercise authority as a pastor. So, I mean, the big three difficulties in church life are um, sexual immorality, division and heresy. And those three are very, very uh, noxious to church life. They are seriously damaging. They will wreck churches if not dealt with. And so it's up to pastors to be hawkish and to understand what's going on in their congregations and to call out such things. And in one sense, they need to be as tough as old boots dealing with those things, but very gentle in the way they deal with people. So, you know, there's a command to, you know, be careful how you deal with a brother in sin, because actually you could be overtaken by that same sin, it says in Galatians. And so therefore, you've got to be super aware of your own uh, feet of clay, but at the same time, deal with those. And if there's something which could be potentially damaging to church life, you've got to try and bubble wrap it, you've got to try and conceal the issue um, unless it's something that is beyond concealment and has to be said to the church you can see it because you're trying to rescue the people involved in it and you don't want to cause gossip and you know tittle tattle 
And so there is a sense in which those big three, sexual immorality, heresy and division, are enemies of church life. So that is a non-negotiable. You must deal with that. But then with more subtle problems, um, you, you, you must be true to your own value system. You've got to be able to say, you know, if someone's come to you with a knotty problem and you feel this is your course of action, you know, you need to hear me on this. If you've allowed me to become your pastor, if you've trusted me, if you, if you know that in the past you've heard God through me, and that there is this beautiful relation of shepherd and sheep, well, I'm going to say some tough stuff to you, but I'm going to use the language of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to be patient with you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to, be, I'm going to listen deeply to you. Well, I'm going to maybe tell you some tough stuff. And you may walk away from me. You may walk away from my church, because use the word mine, inverted commas, and I, I'm going to lose you because in the end, I leave you to, you've got to walk before God. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna control you, but I am gonna tell you some tough stuff if I have to. And so therefore, I think there's a challenge in all leaders. Again, you know, listening to this podcast, let leaders lead. You know, lead diligently, says the New Testament. I, and I often find if I've traveled to one or two different churches in my time, uh, often the lead elder will say to me, you know, we need to learn how to lead. And not and be confident in our leadership. And it's surprising when they say that because you think, well, that's probably one of the first things you learn to do. But there is a there is an enemy coming against you and saying to you, you lack confidence. You know, you you mustn't say anything at this point. Don't you stick your head above the parapet and say what? Well, don't call this out because you'll end up losing people. And there's that terrible tension. We think I've got to be true to what I know. I've got to say in this moment. And so therefore, there is a calling on all leaders in church life to to be in the truth and to speak the truth in love. But as long as you know that your heart has learned the language of entreaty, the language of grace, that you understand that you don't control these people, you are you know, Christ's vicar, and that you, you do it in a way that is New Testament, the way Paul did it, you know. So. Yeah, that's really helpful. And um, yeah, some, some great advice there. Um, Jesus is, you know, do you love me? There's a relationship then you, like you said, you receive that, you know, in, infilling of God's love for you, your love for him. But then the, the, the thing after that is he says, feed my sheep. He doesn't say lead my church or as in like, or doesn't say run my church. He says feed my sheep. Obviously pastoring and being a pastor involves making decisions involves casting vision pointing in a direction of travel for the congregation and the the, the the flock but um what are some of your reflections on how you see churches at the moment think through that distinction between um pastor as teacher of the flock who feeds the flock and pastor as manager ceo visionary or some comments on that Sure. I mean, ch church has become, you know, a very uh, sophisticated enterprise now with buildings, with trustees, with charity commission, employment law. Um, we had this thing called furlough during COVID and, and, and the government's help and, and bank loans for buildings. And, you know, this is a complex picture. This is not the dynamic, mobile, lightweight, you know, uh, you, you know Eugene Peterson's book uh, on Galatians Travel, Travelling Light, where they an easy job traveling light if you're a, if you're a, a church leader today because you've got all sorts of things to be concerned about there's gdpr there's safeguarding i mean it's, it is a pretty big minefield out there 
So therefore, team ministry is even more important. So I, I love what you've done at Seaford, Jez, in terms of elders and deacons, the, the passing the practical, you know, the kind of the executive pastor idea across to deacons, the diaconate taking on uh, areas of church life which uh, are delegated to them, which are immensely practical and help things for the elders. Plural eldership is crucially important that, that you haven't got some isolated individual who's going to crash and burn at some point in the future. Um, and therefore, um, it is incumbent upon the elders, the pastors, to really hear from God. And I can't remember, was it Bill Hyder said, speed of the team, speed of the leader, you know, that, that the elders are meant to be going, you know, firing on all six cylinders before God, feeding the flock, understanding the, the, the next hill that we're going to take, the vision casting, the, the, and that lovely sense of security that church members have when they sense that their leaders, kind of, even if they don't know where they're going, they're seriously in tune with God and they exude a confidence and, a, and, and an intimacy with God that is intangible. You know it when you recognise it that smell of the New Testament where you sense my leaders have been in the presence of God and you can tell it, you can smell it a mile off where that confidence comes, even if you say brothers and sisters, we don't really know what we're doing next, but we have every confidence that God's going to show us the way forward. And so I feel for us as leaders, elders, pastors, call it what you like, um, you know, go back and read that book by John Mark Homer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, read it again and again and again and say to yourselves, am I doing life hurried or am I doing life the way God wants me to do it? Have I got before God in the secret place and am I recharging my batteries? Am I super slow reading in the scriptures? Am I feeding my soul with the, the only thing that really counts here, my closeness to God, so that I can walk into a public setting and know that I'm the real deal, that I've done the private stuff that you didn't see and that I come with integrity before you and I, I can then say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do you know, in this meeting, in the, you know, with this church meeting, in this elders meeting, with this difficult person, with these knotty problems of how we advance in church planting? You know, I, I don't have to have the answers, but I do need to know that I'm up close and personal with my God. There's no substitute. It's, it's, this ain't no rocket science. You know, this is beautiful because... You know, be, then becoming a leader isn't so burdensome. You you you've got to do the basic stuff, and then the rest. I think that's the, it's Paul's secrets that even in jail he's singing songs, and even you know when he lists the persecutions he had, calls himself the scum of the earth. Somehow he's still, you know, I'm content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I, I I love that he's a free man, and that's what we want our leaders to be free to be themselves so that they're not hyping it or you know or they're trying to be like a different they watched a different leader on youtube and think i've got to be like that no be yourself god's called you to be you so and you mentioned uh you, you took you mentioned calvinism earlier and i think sometimes we need to lean lean into some of our calvinistic roots um to the degree that we are able to trust the sovereignty of god and reduce the urgency of anxiety that we feel, I think in a, in a movement like ours, a family like ours, which has a wonderful emphasis on mission and church planting, the danger is that we can lean over into activism and anxiety um, around the mission. And let, you're absolutely right. The Apostle Paul knows what the Lord's called him to and is therefore able to be content 
you know, he's he's faced with the burden of the churches. He's, you know, he, he's constantly trying to go beyond to the new frontiers that the Lord calls him to. But he's not he's not driven. He's 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 content in the Lord's will for his life. He's able to you know spend just a few you know was it in the Book of Acts? Uh, Felix just keeps him in in custody for several years and just in a sentence. You're like, oh, there's a few years of his life just lost down the drain there in a society where people didn't live long. Um, talk about you know FOMO and your life passing you by and all of that. And I, I suppose there's an element to which that helps us avoid becoming driven leaders who end up using the flock to achieve a vision that we've got, that we've got to do this. It's getting the balance, isn't it, between we're on mission, we've got to go, the Lord's called us, but I don't want to drive the sheep. <laughs> um, help. Yeah, what are your thoughts yeah. on all of that? No, 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 I mean, this is a fascinating area. I mean, you know, it's about, um, it's funny, when I've pl- I planted two churches now in my time, and we did everything we possibly could in the early stages. Yeah, we were here, there, everywhere, just setting up this course here, that course there, doing alpha bereavement courses. We're doing, yeah, we're doing, we're distributing videos. We're setting up life groups as a youth thing. There's a there's a mission to that. We're trying to do an overseas connection. But as you grow, I think you narrow it down to understanding that God's called you to perhaps be a church which does three things, maybe four things, really, really well that your calling is to not to be seduced by the siren voices saying you now that you're up to 200 or 300 or 500 you can you know you can really go here there and everywhere no you'll dissipate your resources that way uh, but stick to the things you feel god's god's called you to do and so you know it becomes a simpler thing i think it simplifies what what you're actually um, your vision for your church is so i think i think that's something each of us has to understand that's really good. Um, I want to. Uh, there's another question looming. I want to come to, but just before we touch on that, um, we're talking a lot about the pastor and the the role of the shepherd, the father in the flock. Um, but pastor, like so many other things, uh, uh, is it can be a you know, pastor teacher can be equated with a gift as much as an office. So, um, when Jesus says to Peter, "Feed my sheep." How much is that something that only shepherds are supposed to do? How much is that something that every saint is allowed to do, gets to play in, use their gift in? Uh, because obviously most people um, in church aren't going to be the shepherd or the pastor. Only two or three men are going to be the elders in a flock or the, the shepherd, the fathers in a family. So um, that's obviously a, a fairly hot button issue. Um, sure. But take, make of that what you will. Sure, sure. No, I... <laughs> Oh, gosh, there's so much to say on that. I mean, very quickly, I would say that so so many churches, I'm a bit generalistic here, so many churches say, come and be part of our programme. So we draw you in and we use you as our servants to fulfil our programme. I really don't like that. I feel uncomfortable with that. I, no, I, I'm get, Don't get me wrong here. You know, that we will set out our stall and say, this is what this church stands for. But at heart, what I want to do is in Ephesians, I want to equip every saint to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And therefore, it's not about the platform party. It's about the good people who are the members of this church who are going to grow to full maturity. And I'm looking at people who look like hopeless cases. I'm looking at people with the most mature saints. And, you know, ultimately, what a dream it will be to have them all 
at the full potential that they were began in in Christ, rising to the glorious maturity of the sons of God, equating to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's my goal. So therefore, the, the pastoring role isn't for the professional few. The, the gifting that we see, and it's not just pastors, it's evangelists, teachers, you know, it, it's administrators, it's, it, you know, it's prophets, it's everybody, grow to your full potential because you're not joining my program. The program is you growing to maturity in Christ. We're growing big people, not big church, and therefore we're setting people free to become who they are in Christ. But, but, but our ambition is sky high for every single member of the church. And, and, and people who sit at the back can sometimes be, if they're like heads down, quiet, they get neglected, but we're after everybody. You know, our mission is to pre present everyone mature in Christ. And so, so we're gotta be careful that the program doesn't swallow up, oh, you've got to do this and this, but actually not recognizing what I've got in front of me are very gifted people. And people who are set in situations, you know, if we really do believe it, is it Acts 17 where God puts you in that street with those people at that time for a particular reason? And to inspire your congregation to say, you know, you live in Central Avenue in 2023 because God's put you there. And you think, man, do I really believe that? Well, it's there in scripture. Paul uses it and says, so therefore you are the precious commodity that no one else is. For this particular moment, this is pregnant with possibility. This is Kairos time, not Kronos time. And saying to all your saints, you know, come on, you are equipped now. And so if I'm not equipping the saints for ministry, dragging them into my program where I feel good about my church, hey, haven't I done well here as leader? That ain't where I'm coming from. And I and I saw that, you know, I saw that in Dubai when I was there. I, it was so thrilling to see different nationalities under one roof and able to reach their different communities because they I mean what I, how could I have a program living uh, in a visa that I had to renew every three years under Islamic skies under the radar being careful not to get in trouble with the authorities what we were able to do is say right come on you Nepalese get back into those labour camps where you know there are people living in terrible conditions. Come on, you Kenyans, you security workers working in that theme park or at that garage. And we, we would in, empower people to go into their communities and, and reach people in a way that I couldn't do because I was flying under the radar. So I learned a very valuable lesson there to equip the saints in their unique calling and the, even to me in their nationality to be effective for the gospel in a very difficult set of circumstances. And the same, same is true in a, you know, a church in a sleepy town, wherever you find yourself. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, really, really good. There's um, lot, lots in there. I mean, the Apostle Paul's letters are written, we mustn't forget, written to the saints on how every Christian ought to respond and live their lives. So there's so little instruction, actually, you know, if you're just counting the verses given specifically to pastors. But it, you know, what we're talking about is the, the management and the governance of the household family of God, which is very important that we have these conversations. But we mustn't forget that well, everybody is a pastor or shepherd to some degree within their own household family. Um, the domestic household, their street, the people that they're in influence around. So we need to talk about that. So let's talk about um, what makes for healthy churches, because there is the, the, the valuable role of pastor. But 
that's not the only office or function that a church needs to be help to be healthy you know you pastor teacher there's a feeding of the flock that's needed to maintain a, a kind of a, a stable diet and a healthy diet but there are other gifts that god gives us evangelist prophet um uh apostle uh, apostle prophet evangelist other gifts as well that it seems to me aren't talked much about or are in a bit of short supply at the moment um let me push that button of yours yeah. i know you're oh, living with you've set me up let me go off on one right okay this is I, i've been looking around uh, the churches that i visit and in my own church as well and just looking at the the current climate and then i'm not looking mainly within um, our own family setup but um i really do feel that we are missing the voice of the prophet in our churches this is a huge generalization but actually the office of prophet or the role of prophet so i remember way back in the early days of new frontiers you know that we really did understand that we were building a church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets now, I think we've established a beautiful apostolic foundation in our churches. We understand who we are by the, you know, the, the grace foundation. But I grew, grew up in my early New Frontiers days encountering prophets who had an accredited ministry. And they were prophets not being prophetic. They were prophets. So I'm thinking of, uh, of people like uh, the wonderful Keith Hazel, who lived, lived in Canada but was from East Anglia. There are other names. I invited a guy called Graham Cook to come to our, our church in, um, in County Durham. Um, and with my fellow elder, Mike, we, we had a wonderful weekend with, with Graham Cook. And those times of inviting a prophet in amongst the church, we warned the church, it's going to be a whole weekend with someone with a full, mature, prophetic ministry. And I'll come to what I think isn't in a moment. This was the most wonderful thing that happened. It was distinctively different from the apostolic. It was distinctively different from the pastor teacher. And I think we're missing that at the moment, that we're missing the maturity that the prophet brings. So the prophet isn't someone who starts, you know, saying in seven years' time there will be a famine or whatever. That may be in the future, I don't know. But to me, the prophet is saying, you know, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. It's time now to move. He makes the church feel uncomfortable. He challenges the church. Um, he's often a, a, a man or a woman with a burden. It's an uncomfortable gifting. It's an uncomfortable role for the person who is called to be a prophet. It's someone who, who upsets the status quo. I mean, was it Gerald Coates who said that status quo in Latin is, is means in English the mess we're in, you know. So the prophet comes, the prophet comes and speaks into the status quo in a way that the pastor teacher, or perhaps the apostolic, I think the apostolic can do it, obviously, uh, but actually the, prof the prophet brings a, a sharpness and, a, and he, uh, he disturbs the nest and he wakes the church up and he brings in the fear of God and he brings in the holiness of God in a way that if we're not careful, we just attend to the sheep's needs and we say they're there, but actually we, the sheep don't need they're there every Sunday. The sheep need to have a, a, a few bombs under them. And the prophet brings that sharpness and that declarative, you know, this is the word of the Lord now to you, church. This is Revelation chapter two. This is Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. This is dynamic. And, and it moves the church on in a way that only the prophet does. So the, the, the apostle may be looking at foundations, 
that actually that church has gone sleepy and it's time to move on from now. And therefore, I long to see that distinctive, salty, tangy, prophetic ministry come back. And I, I honestly think this is it. Forgive me. This is a generalization, but I think we've largely lost that a bit at the moment. We've lost the plot with that. And I don't really know why. I think probably because it's such a difficult ministry that, that actually to be a prophet and an accredited proper kind of, you know, trusted, real prophet, not, not someone who's kind of obsessed with themselves and, and feeling good about themselves when they're operating in the gifts of the spirit and, you know, building their own empire. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone who's suffering from, because they're carrying this burden. Man, I long to see that back because I think our churches will, will change profoundly through the, the prophet's ministry. I just lobbed that into the conversation. So I really miss that. It's really good. I think the danger is I think every pastor and teacher feels the need for that sort of ministry in their congregation. But A, they don't know where to turn to find it. But then B, there's a nervousness because as a pastor teacher, you're concerned with the, the care and the protection of your people. You don't want to invite some wild person from the outside, a John the Baptist, you know, locust eating, camel hair wearing, you know, someone that you're a bit concerned about. It's a bit wild. But never, so you have to have a relationship with the with the person you're going to invite. Either they have to have a trusted ministry, but then it could. But if you don't do that as pastor teacher, but you need you see the need for it in your churches, what happens is that you, I think, as a pastor teacher, then fall foul of feeling like, well, I ought to do it. We need to be the Messiah. We have to have every uh, gift under the sun, and yeah. that that's surely unhealthy as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the prophet. I mean, I remember the very first thing that Graham Cook said when he came up. To, to our church in the north and uh, I was nervous of him because you know I'm thinking I'm going to be picking up the pieces at the end of this weekend and, I, and I'm going to have a very busy few weeks after he's left but we had Friday night through to Sunday lunchtime with him and on that Friday evening he stood up to speak and there's 200 of us waiting very nervous because he thought he was going to pick people out in the crowd and he was going to do all sorts of crazy things and he, he, I'll never forget it he said God is the kindest man I know that was his opening remarks. I've never forgotten it. And so a, a real prophet will bring the heart of God and, and the immediacy of God. And of course, we're back to 1 Corinthians 13. We're back to the fact that in his desire to see his church lamps, you know, trimming the wick, making the lamp burn brightly, he may cut deep. I wound, but I heal. You know, there's that cleansing of the prophet because he loves you. He so the, pro the true prophet brings the love of God, but he brings it in his own distinctive, flavoursome way. And I honestly do think there are a few churches that are stuck at the moment and need the office of prophet to come back. And I think I want God to call some embryonic prophets to grow in this gifting. But we've got to be really careful because there's a lot of wacky stuff out there, which is very unhelpful. And you need to be wise as serpents to know Okay, if I get my training, where am I going to get my training from? If I'm going to grow in this gifting, in this office, I need to know that this is trustworthy and I'm not going to go cranky or I'm not going to get, you know, kind of big-headed and, and go down some blind alley of cul-de-sac. But I, I, I do believe with all my heart that the prophet brings an incredible, wholesome um, ministry to the church which is in need now because we're second generation new frontiers now and we had that 
sharp, you know, Terry believed so much that New Frontiers would be growing through the voice of the prophetic, you know, John Groves is amazing prophetic word, you know, there are no well-worn paths, you know, you are a herd of elephants trampling down the forest, you know, you're going to have to keep close to me, says God, because, you know, this house church movement, you know, you don't know where you're going. And so, you know, the, the whole movement of New Frontiers built on prophetic words. How many churches these days can say, we know we're going in the right direction because we've heard the trumpet call of a prophet saying, go this way. And we've, it's resonated with us. We've weighed it up. This is exciting. We know this is God speaking to us. And therefore, with that adds faith into the mix. And then, come on, the Lord has spoken to us. We know that we can stretch ourselves with our finances. We know that we can say to the doubters, no, no, we're going this way. Come with us because God has spoken to us. It's not just a teaching from the Bible. There's lots of articulate teachers out there. You know, loads of people can stand up and bring a good word, but we all, we need both. We need that rhema word, the now word of God, as well as the bringing treasures old and new out of your storehouse. Mm, it's really good. And it, it brings us back to this, the importance of plurality as well, isn't it? That we're not looking to, we're, A, we're not talking about a pastor singular. We're talking about pastors of the flock uh, who are connected to saints with gifts of various kinds. So there's always a plural dynamic to everything that's going on. But even in the way that churches are, uh, are fed and cared for, there needs to be outside voices um, entering, speaking into, bringing their different gifts. And hearing you say all of this is is very provocative, is making me think about certain settings where I need to now be approaching people from outside. Who are those? Like you said, if Terry was good at uh, raising up and releasing various Ephesians 4 gifts, who are those people that we as second generation leaders perhaps are going to be looking around saying, okay, hey, well, it's it's not fully, fully grown yet. It's not fully mature, but there's something in that person. Let's, let's invite it in. Let's welcome it. Um, or what would be some of your suggestions on how we can move forward from this position? Yeah, I think you're growing a, a culture. You should be every church should be growing a culture of openness to the Holy Spirit. So, therefore, again, go back to that word program, so that all that you're doing is suffused with this waiting on God feel in your meetings. Uh, not that we do nothing in meetings. We preach, we teach, we teach the kids, we break bread, we we worship, but somehow you're building this culture of openness to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I often feel, so I speak for us in Eastbourne, we're a big church, as you well know, you know, 600 gathering on a Sunday. And sometimes you can come to the meeting and think, it, I've said this to the, my fellow elders, it feels like a juggernaut. And so you, you arrive and we, we've got live stream kicking off and we're so aware of the, the massive thing that we're doing on a Sunday. And the band strikes up the first songs and away we go and 600 voices and you know we we fired the gun and off we go and actually to to control it a small c so that the holy spirit is saying this is my meeting thank you and that somehow we are have these oases of reflection and quietness where god is able to deal with his people speak to his people they've come to meet him they've not come to meet the juggernaut that is the public meeting where we don't stop this because it's just running and running now no slow it down build in to your meeting those brave times we say well let's just stop now 
600 people let's go quiet on god and so people are engaging with god and he's able and you know, through the words of knowledge through prophetic utterances through through scripture reading through all the beautiful variety of the giftings and the body ministry people are meeting god um and i think that's one of the dangers of a very big church that in a smaller setting there is much more powerful one-to-one -one ministry going on um and so people are are getting their marching orders and so people are understanding who they are and so people are receiving gifts they are they're getting recommissioned they're getting stripes back on their on their uniform they're they're, they're starting to wield the sword again of the spirit they're you know they're, they're they're doing what they should be doing because the meeting is is powerfully uh, orchestrated by the holy spirit so that is such a challenge on us as we grow bigger and bigger is to keep that openness and not be afraid to say you know there are now going going to be times of, of quietness i remember john wimber and i i would love to think this i i could see this happen in my day. I remember back in the 80s, and John Wimber standing on the stage at the Brighton Conference, um, and it was the days when there were remarkable healings and ministry of John Wimber from the States coming over, and he was non-denominational, he went to the Catholics, he went to the Anglicans, he came to us, he stands on the stage at the Brighton Conference, and he's got, he's got his hands in his pocket, and you think, man, this guy's irreverent, and yet he's just so full of grace he's like everybody's favorite grandfather he stands on the stage in front of five thousand people and he says um he says well i'm now going to wait for the holy spirit and he then says to us with a big chuckle a grandfatherly smile on his face he says don't be alarmed by what happens next he said <laughs> i'll never forget it it was so funny i thought well, how do you know what's going to happen next john Wimber? you know and then we wait to three four minutes and he's just smiling looking like everybody's favorite grandfather across at all these people and then from across the bleachers somebody starts to weep and you can hear some laughter and giggling over the other side none of this is hyped the holy spirit starting to move in the room i'm thinking man i, I want to see that again i want to i want to see the holy spirit with his people with some of them, he's making them laugh because they've suffered from depression and they're laughing and the depression's lifting off them. And those who are weeping are feeling loved again. And those who are, are sitting very still are sensing the peace of God's coming on. They're not worrying and anxious anymore. And you think, how did you do that, John? And I know how he did it. He was in his private life. He was on the floor before God uh in the secret place and and god used that man powerfully and it's a paradigm for us to say lord i need to take from that and say well how do you want to work that out in my context it won't be the same it's now 2023 but please holy spirit be welcome here please holy spirit don't make me manipulate the crowd please holy spirit make an authentic work happen here you know and and people will be running to church next week to say they're not looking for whiz bangs because you've got to keep on the you know you've got to teach through romans still you've got to you've got to do all the necessary important things to grow people up but boy do i want an atmosphere of that where the holy spirit said because he'll commission people coming back to your original question the prophets will start to arise the evangelists will start to get inspired the you know the administrator will start to say i can do that for you i want to be a deacon you know I, come on i feel that's my calling i 
give me the car park team. I feel God's spoken to me. <laughs> you know, you get volunteerism back, which is not doing very well at the moment in most churches. People are commitment shy. And yet when the spirit of God comes, man, you, you're suddenly in the reality of the beautiful church. And this is the most precious thing you could give yourself to. And it's time to sign up again. And it's time to serve, pray, serve, give, get going again. Stop being sloppy. You know, the, the spirit's here. There's a hill to take. Come well, on. Man, preach it, Clive. <laughs> preach it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Even in what you're, even as you're, you're saying that, uh, you know, you said people are commitment shy actually they're overcommitted in too many places probably because they've lost a love of the centrality of the local church as being the thing they want to give all their time love energy prayer support to and as you're saying this when you create an environment of that hunger and expectation for the dynamic power and presence of god people will drop everything else they're doing to be there because that's the only gig in town that's the only thing worth going to and uh, and this is a wonderful place to place it. You know, we've been talking about pastors. We've been using Jesus before Peter as a kind of a, a paradigmatic image of what a pastor is supposed to do. Feed my sheep. Pastors don't think that means teach sermons only. Feed my sheep means help them grow up. And that means allow room for the, the beautiful presence of the spirit to just come and rest on his people. Um, Clive, why don't we end this uh, with you just praying that sort of thing into us as churches and those who are listening? Yeah, I, it's funny. I just feel God prompting me to pray for people who have been hurt by church life. And um, we think of those things called trust, respect and love. And Lord, I pray just for those people listening to this podcast who have found church life to be really difficult. Perhaps you're pastoring experience has caused you great difficulty and father i pray for all those who are, uh, love the local church and are involved in it and those who feel a bit outside at the moment and feel like uh, refugees and feel lost father i pray that the trust comes back trust at leader level trust in you lord god that that you will not be a deceptive brook to them that you love them and there are only good things ahead, that the best is yet to come. And I pray for that sense of being able to respect leadership comes back. And I pray for love for the church, your great glory, the church of the living God. And Lord, I pray for all those working so hard within the church that they will be refreshed and renewed to give themselves to this beautiful work of seeing the kingdom of God established through the churches being planted all over the world. And I pray that again for those who have been taken out of the battle, the walking wounded. And I pray that you would, Father, bring your healing touch to them, that they might again pick up shield and sword and play the full part that you have given to them uniquely. So thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for us, for Jez and I, to talk together about this beautiful, beautiful thing called the Bride of Christ. And Lord, as we lo love the way Revelation ends, may the Bride, the Church of God, and the Spirit work in tandem together and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The day will come when the Spirit and the Bride are praying the same prayer. Come Lord Jesus. And then the end will come. What a thrill. And then that's just the beginning of the real life. So we commit it to you, Lord. 
in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.